Welcome to the season two finale of Antisocial Cities. Y'all, think about how far we've come. This season, we've talked about Putin and Kim Jong-un, Colin Kaepernick and Squanto. We've traveled to England to figure out what the heck is going on with Brexit and to Saudi Arabia to figure out what the heck is going on between Jared and MBS. I'm really proud of this season, but it's time for a break. And by break, I mean time for me to create my new AP World History curriculum, attend a ton of teacher trainings and meetings, and of course, get ready for season three. Get excited, because I'm coming back in August and I'm going back to my roots. I started this podcast with the intent of opening up my classroom to anyone and everyone who wanted to learn. Season one, we learned the whole history of the world in 17 episodes. This season, we've gotten some historical context for current events. And season three, we're going back to high school to learn some U.S. history. That's right. We'll be talking about John Smith and Pocahontas to JFK and Jackie. We'll fight the War of 1812 for some reason, and then fight the war in Vietnam for some reason. We'll look at controversial presidents like Andrew Jackson and Richard Nixon, and I'll do my best not to make too many allusions to today's political situation. It'll be tough. You'll finally understand that Seinfeld episode about the Van Buren boys, and understand the backstory to South Pacific and Hairspray and Hair and Miss Saigon and 1776 and Bye Bye Birdie and... Whoa! I never realized how many musicals stole so much of their material from history, but... Hold on, we'll get back to musicals in a second. Now, if you're sad that I won't be covering current events for a while, don't be, because I'll still be covering current events and their historical context every single week. Even during my summer break, my Patreon members will still get to hear me rant about Congress or try to explain what Iran is up to. So make sure you've signed up so you don't miss anything. Or if you just really like the content I've been creating, Patreon is a way to show your support and help me continue making these episodes that will always be free and available to everyone. And if you can't join my Patreon right now for whatever reason, then I'm asking you to share my podcast with any and everyone who might be interested. Let's spread the word and keep this history nerd empire growing. So again, I really hope that you'll go to www.patreon.com slash antisocial studies. At least check it out. The first few episodes that are up are free and available to everyone, so you can see if you like it. And if you do, please join. I'd really appreciate it. And teachers and students, please notice that I have made a tier specifically for you. So if you are an educator or a current student, then you can get access to my weekly news roundup for just $3 a month. That's a really great deal, and I hope that you find it valuable. Um, so if you're a current educator, and that means really anyone working in a school, because we're all educating those kids, or if you're a current student in middle school, high school, college, grad school, then you can get access to my weekly news episode called The Water Cooler for just $3 a month. So please go to Patreon and check it out. Okay, back to today. In our season two finale, you're going to get somewhat of a preview into what's in store after the summer break, because we're going back in history for this one. How does a classroom teacher know knowledge of technology? A podcast she makes and breaks all of the rules, and the world's gonna know its name. What's the name? Antisocial studies. This is antisocial studies. So many episodes I haven't made, but just you wait, just you wait. So, uh, yeah. I just saw Hamilton, and I loved it. Is it too obvious? Could you tell that I loved it? I mean, duh. Don't worry, you don't have to have seen the musical to find this episode interesting, and I can't really spoil it for you because, well, you know, it happened over 250 years ago, but I do have a bone to pick with Lin-Manuel Miranda. 
I mean, there he is making an amazing musical entirely inspired by history, easily one of the greatest modern musicals of all time. And he goes and makes it about the wrong person. I'm in love. He's tall, handsome, accomplished, French. And I mean, he's 261 years old. He's stolen my historical heart, and I'm legit not sure how I feel about it. Like, I feel like I'm cheating on George or Eleanor, but honestly, I think that this guy I'm gonna talk about today is the most interesting individual I've ever researched before. Like, in all of human history. And I'm actually not being sarcastic or hyperbolic, which I know you expect me to be. I mean, about three lines into this guy's Wikipedia page, I made a bowl of popcorn, curled up on my couch, and spent the next hour and a half straight reading every single thing I could find about his life. I'm not joking. So this episode was originally going to be about Alexander Hamilton, but like the musical pretty much covered that. And then it was going to be about all of the side characters that I wanted to learn about after seeing the musical. John Lawrence, Hamilton's best friend, and ooh, possibly the love of Hamilton's life. Seriously, go read their letters to each other. It's a real thing. John Lawrence, despite the fact that his father was one of the most successful slave traders in the colonies and the president of the Continental Congress, he made it his life's mission to convince the revolutionary leadership that the colonies couldn't truly be fighting for freedom if they still enslaved Africans. And I mean, he was right, but nobody listened to him. And I was going to go into detail about the Schuyler sisters. What badasses, right? Eliza acted essentially as Hamilton's agent, negotiating with his publisher as he wrote the now legendary Federalist Papers. She danced with George Washington at his first inaugural ball, and later was the first person to hear his farewell address, which is easily my favorite document in all of American history, because she stayed up late while Hamilton worked and read it aloud to her. After Hamilton died, she collected all of his writings and published the first biography of Alexander Hamilton. And she teamed up with Dolly Madison and Louisa Adams, like the Charlie's Angels of the Founding Fathers, to raise money to build the Washington Monument. Or really, my favorite Schuyler sister, Angelica. After marrying a British-born merchant who made a ton of money supplying weapons to the Americans and the French during the Revolution, she lived in Europe for decades. She was close friends and pen pals with the greatest minds of the day, like George, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and my main man. Which brings me to today's episode. He's the man who stole my heart and totally destroyed my original plan for this podcast. I couldn't contain his fascinating life into just one act. He needed his own episode. Today, we're talking about Marie-Joseph-Paul-Yves-Roch-Gilbert Dumotier, the Marquis de Lafayette. Y'all, that only took me one take. Nicely done, right? Who was Lafayette, this mysterious Frenchman who helped us win our revolution? And what happened to him after the war was over? Spoiler, like everything. All of the things happened to him after the war was over. Today's episode is called Move Over, Hamilton. It's Lafayette's shot. This is Anti-Social Studies. I'm Emily Glenkler. Settle in and let's get some historical context. Act 1. The French-American Revolutionary Lafayette was a member of the French nobility, born in 1757. And in case you don't know much about European history, that's pretty much the worst era to be born into French nobility. So the fact that he will not only survive, but thrive during the age of revolutions is legit amazing. He was made an officer in the French military at 13, I think mostly ceremonial, but still, whoa, which was the same year that he lost his entire family and inherited a ton of wealth. He married a 14-year-old, I mean, he was 16, so it's slightly less creepy, but still. 
And she was, how do you say, oh, she was loaded. He moved in with his wife's family in their home in Versailles. That's right. His father-in-law was part of the king's court that was allowed to live at the palace. So, I mean, it's pretty sweet. Despite growing up in the literal lap of luxury, Lafayette was an enlightened man. And when he heard about the rebellion in the American colonies against the British, he was inspired. Now, a lot of Frenchmen were excited by this development, and they wanted to go help the Americans, but that was mostly about sticking it to their mortal enemy, the British. But Lafayette was unique in that he seemed to genuinely believe in the democratic cause for which many of the colonists were fighting, and he wanted to help. The French government refused to send soldiers because it would threaten outright war with the British. So Lafayette, going against his king's and his father-in-law's direct orders, oh yeah, his father-in-law was also his commanding officer, which is awkward, He used 112,000 pounds of his own inheritance to buy a ship. He sailed away in secret, landing in South Carolina in 1777. When he made it to Philadelphia, he was not the only Frenchman who'd made his way there. Americans had been recruiting French soldiers for a few years now, so the Continental Congress was frankly drowning in inexperienced soldiers who didn't speak English. Lafayette was different. For one, he learned basic English on the voyage over, although he would become fluent within a year thanks to the tutoring of his soon-to-be BFF, John Lawrence. But Lafayette was also a member of the Freemasons, a secret fraternal organization of which a guy named George Washington was also a member. Heard of him? This, along with the fact that the American envoy to France, Benjamin Franklin, had met Lafayette back in France and he vouched for him. This opened doors for Lafayette to be in, you know, the rooms where it happens. But the most persuasive reason why the revolutionary leaders paid attention to Lafayette was because he offered to serve without pay. Oh, hello! Now, his commission in the military was supposed to be honorary. It looked good for the colonists to have a Frenchman of such high standing on their side. But Lafayette would see to it before the war was over that this was changed so that he could actually fight in the war. But in the meantime, he became part of what is known colloquially by historians as Washington's family. Ugh, I would love to be part of Washington's family. George Washington had a few dozen aides de camp personal assistants and advisors whom he personally recruited from the best and brightest revolutionary minds, including John Lawrence and Alexander Hamilton. Washington quickly recognized Lafayette's intelligence and his earnest belief in their cause, and he asked Lafayette to hold him in confidence as a, quote, friend and father. George, will you be my friend and father too, please? What Lafayette is known for, at least in high school history textbooks, is his success in getting support from France during the war. Like, this is all that I knew about him before I went to see Hamilton. I just knew he was the French dude who helped get money and troops to help us win the revolution. In 1779, at the age of 22, he traveled to France to petition the government for more support. He was placed under house arrest for a week for defying the king's orders when he slipped away to America, but this was really just a formality. Lafayette was greeted back in Paris as a celebrity, the first of many heroes' welcomes he would receive in his lifetime. Lafayette ended up securing 6,000 French troops under the command of General Rochambeau. Yeah, the guy that Rock, Paper, Scissors is named after, for some reason. Like, really, historians have researched it, and they have no idea where that came from. But it was him. But Lafayette asked for more. He actually wanted a full-scale French invasion of Britain with himself at the head. Many of the world powers were beginning to ally with the American cause. Again, mostly just to take down the Great British Empire a few pegs. Spanish ships were already on their way to join the French fleet, but they didn't arrive in time, and the invasion was abandoned. Lafayette returned to America, but not before fathering a son with his wife, whom he named George Washington Lafayette. Oh, yeah. And the ship he took back to the Americas was called the Hermione, by the way. Ugh, I just already love this guy's life so much. 
When he rejoined Washington, he continued to use his influence to write personal letters to foreign dignitaries to send support. These letters, spell-checked by Alexander Hamilton, pretty great study buddy, also went out to leaders in the American colonies, pushing them to send more men to the cause. I mean, if the French were willing to risk their life for your freedom, like, why aren't you? It's a pretty solid argument. Also, not only did the Frenchman recruit Europeans to help, he recruited Native Americans, too. He and a friend had gone to upstate New York to establish good relations with the Oneida Nation. During the terrible winter at Valley Forge, after traveling 200 miles on foot, 49 Oneida warriors strode into camp to a 13-gun salute, where they joined Lafayette's men, patrolling the countryside, keeping tabs on the British Army. They proved themselves very quickly when they protected Lafayette from an attempted kidnapping and defended against a British force much larger in size long enough for Washington's troops to join and drive the British back. By the end of the war, other Native Americans had joined the fight, although many were targeted by other Native groups who saw their alliance with the colonists as a betrayal. 300 Oneida warriors fought in the revolution, including seven who were commissioned as lieutenants and captains, thanks to Lafayette. So Lafayette eventually got his wish, commanding troops in battle, where he distinguished himself. His biggest victory was holding back General Cornwallis's troops in Virginia so that the American and French troops could prepare themselves for the siege at Yorktown. This ended up being the decisive battle that effectively ended the American Revolution. Hamilton and John Lawrence also distinguished themselves in this battle, and John Lawrence was selected to actually write up the formal letter that Cornwallis would sign surrendering to the Continental Army. Like, these dudes were on fire. Yorktown was the last major land battle of the Revolution, although there was still fighting to be done. For example, John Lawrence traveled to his home state of South Carolina to join up with General Nathaniel Green, where he was killed in a skirmish when the war was all but over. While Lafayette wanted to lead troops into the major port cities to capture the rest of the British troops, George Washington convinced him that it would be more effective if he could convince the French Navy to get more involved. He was then put in charge of all of the American envoys to Europe, meaning that Benjamin Franklin in Paris, John Jay in Madrid, and John Adams in The Hague all reported directly to him. Any deal that they made with their respective foreign allies had to be run through and agreed upon by Lafayette. He was 25 years old, and he had already helped turn the tide in this first revolution, but it wouldn't be his last. One revolution down, at least two more to go. Act 2. A French-French Revolutionary Lafayette was a hugely important connection for the brand new United States. He returned to France and worked to continue growing the alliance between his two countries. He set up his unofficial headquarters in a hotel in Paris where any and every prominent American of the day stopped by for dinner. Like every Monday night, he and his wife hosted Benjamin Franklin, John and Sarah Jay, and John and Abigail Adams for dinner. And I like to imagine that they also had a game night. Like, I bet Lafayette was really good at charades. Throughout his life, Lafayette was a fierce advocate for the abolition of slavery. He joined the French abolitionist cause called the Society of the Friends of the Blacks. This group was radical in that it didn't just push for the end of the practice of slavery, but it argued for full and equal rights for free blacks. And this is something that would take the United States 200 more years to establish, or, I mean, more, depending on who you ask. Lafayette was a badass. He visited the United States in 1784, where he visited George Washington's estate, and there he spoke with the Virginia House of Delegates on the need to end slavery. Okay, let me say that again. 
So he spoke in front of the most powerful slaveholding men in the country on one of the largest slave plantations in the country, which also happened to be the home of the current president. And he urged them to emancipate their slaves and accept the true, quote, liberty of all mankind that they had just claimed to fight for. Like, that dude had nerves of steel. This commitment to liberty came in handy a few years later back in France. First, he was invited by King Louis XVI to join an assembly that he had chosen to deal with the growing economic crisis in France. And Lafayette was one of the only ones in attendance who argued straight to the king's face that he should include all of his people by calling a true national assembly, but the king refused. Oh no. Two years later, in the year that would see the opening shots of the French Revolution, he was elected to the Estates General. Now, I know this isn't a French government lesson, but basically the Estates General was their parliament or congress. It was a holdover from the Middle Ages. Representatives from the three estates, which the first estate is the clergy, the second estate is the nobility, that's what Lafayette was, and the third estate was everyone else. And the problem was that whenever an issue came up, each estate essentially got one vote. So typically, the first and second estates would always join together to outvote the third, even though the third estate represented about 90% of the population. So, you know, this like middle class and peasants, they weren't super happy about this arrangement. And Lafayette was in a position of power already, but instead of sitting back and eating his cake, he argued that the estates general should be made more democratic by voting by head, meaning voting based on the population you represent. That would diminish his own voting power, but he argued for this just for the sake of democracy. I mean, obviously the third estate loved this idea, and some members of the clergy joined him, but by and large his own nobility of the second estate refused to join in. And I predict that some heads will roll in a few years. So for those of you familiar with the French Revolution, which at this point I'm talking to you, world history teachers, hello. Lafayette's resume reads like a timeline of the most important events in French history. So he was one of the original members to declare the National Assembly that would go on to replace the Estates General. When they were kicked out of the palace, he agreed to the tennis court oath, so-called because it was an oath, that they made on, you guessed it, a tennis court. From that oath, they agreed to draft a formal constitution that they would force the king to sign. Okay, this is the part that blew my mind. I could not believe that I didn't know this. Lafayette was the one who wrote the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. And for those history teachers who always have students compare that document with the U.S. Declaration of Independence, you know, you compare similarities. They are so similar because Lafayette consulted his old friend, Thomas Jefferson. Like, he's writing a Declaration of Rights and he calls up Thomas Jefferson for some help. Like, he could not have asked a better person, literally. It's like asking Cyrus the Great how to build an empire or Beyonce how to perform. It's just beautiful. As he was writing his draft of the Declaration, he broke with his friend TJ, and he advocated for the abolition of slavery, but it mostly fell on deaf ears for now. When the Bastille prison and armory was stormed by a mob, this is the official beginning of the French Revolution for most, Lafayette was appointed by the National Assembly to be the commander-in-chief of France's National Guard. His job, it's a hard one, was to maintain order between the revolutionaries and the king's men. I mean, good luck with that. He answered to the National Assembly, though, not the king, so he was definitely on the side of the revolution. And this was solidified by the fact that the mob handed over the key to the Bastille to Lafayette, who promptly packed it up and shipped it to his old friend George Washington. Ugh. You can see the key to the Bastille at Mount Vernon today. And I don't know why, but this, like, kind of makes me want to cry. Like, he loved George Washington as much as I do. 
As head of the National Guard, Lafayette chose the new colors for the group to combine the red and blue of Paris to represent the people with the royal white. So what I'm saying is that he created the French flag. He had an almost impossible job as he tried to steer a middle path of an orderly end to the absolute monarchy. I mean, essentially, those who opposed the king fell into two camps. There were moderates who just wanted the king to sign a constitution, making France a constitutional monarchy where the people had rights and a voice like in Britain. And then there were the radicals who didn't want a king at all. And Lafayette was kind of stuck in the middle of those two. For example, a Parisian crowd led by women fishmongers marched from Paris to the palace at Versailles, demanding that the monarchs leave the palace so that they could come to Paris and be more responsive to the revolution. Lafayette led the National Guard to follow the march to attempt to keep order. But when it turned violent, he also had to step in and protect the royal family. When Marie Antoinette stood on the balcony and tried to address the crowds, basically the only thing that stopped the mob from tearing her apart was probably the fact that Lafayette kissed her hand and led her back inside. And this middle path made sense, but it put him in the crosshairs of the radicals, especially the Jacobines. When they took power, Lafayette was denounced as a traitor to the people by Maximilien Robespierre, the instigator of the Reign of Terror himself. And I mean, honestly, if I had to be denounced during the Reign of Terror, I would only be okay with it if it was by Robespierre. Like... I don't want some rando putting me to the guillotine. I want to earn it. When the reign of terror began, Lafayette was actually with his troops in Europe fighting against Austria. They were not okay with a revolution against an absolute monarchy. I mean, it was scary to all the other absolute monarchs in Europe. But also because Marie Antoinette was the daughter of Austrian Empress Maria Theresa. Uh-oh. Lafayette returned home after sending a letter in advance denouncing the Jacobins. Bad timing, dude. Like, read the room. When he got to Paris, he was like, what I miss? And he quickly fled to the Austrian Netherlands, which is Belgium today. He was hoping to catch a ship to the U.S., but he was captured by Austrian troops, and he spent the next five years in prison. At this point, you might be wondering, well, what did the United States do to help him? After all, they had made him a citizen, and he was one of their national heroes who helped free them from the prison of an absolute ruler. Surely they would return the favor. Yeah, not really. The U.S. stayed out of the French Revolution, not wanting to get into entangling alliances in Europe. Smart advice from George Washington, but really ironic, considering that that meant that they didn't help the French in their own revolution. The most that they did was send Lafayette money while he and his wife were in prison that made their captivity more comfortable. It was like back pay for his service in the Continental Army. Yeah, thanks. But you know who did step in to help? Angelica Schuyler! That's right, get it, girl. Angelica Schuyler and her husband, who was at this point a British member of Parliament, they orchestrated Lafayette's escape from prison with the help of the son of Benjamin Huger, who was the man whom Lafayette had stayed with in South Carolina when he first landed in his first two weeks in the United States. Y'all, like, be nice to everyone. Seriously, network. You never know who's going to help you escape from an Austrian prison, and that's what I've always said. Unfortunately, Lafayette was recaptured, and he spent much of the rest of his imprisonment in solitary confinement. How would he ever get out of prison? I mean, it would take a really high-level person of importance to arrange that. Foreshadowing. Okay, before we get to that, let's review. As a young man, he lived in Versailles with King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette. He traveled Europe. He personally met with Frederick the Great of Prussia and King George III of England. Awkward, considering he would go on to help fight against him. Then he became a loyal and trusted friend to George Washington and just about every other founding father. So who else could we add to this ridiculous laundry list of notable historical figures that pop up in Lafayette's life? Make sure you're sitting down, because I'm bringing out the big guns for this one. 
Act 3, a global revolutionary. All right, so Lafayette is in prison, and in walks Napoleon Bonaparte! What? The French Revolution has subsided, the reign of terror ended, and Napoleon had stepped into the power vacuum to become Emperor of France. And now, I don't know if you've noticed yet, but like, Lafayette isn't a fan of absolute monarchs. He refused to swear allegiance to Napoleon, the guy who helped get him out of prison. Y'all, nerves of steel. Even though this meant that he would be stripped of all of his titles and lands, leaving him and his family destitute. Well, I mean, destitute in the way a global celebrity of noble birth can be, right? Like, he was fine. He lived in Hamburg with his wife's aunt, unable to go to the United States because they were in a quasi-war with France over unpaid debts, among other things. So Lafayette went from being a dual citizen to a man with no country. Eventually, this exile was ended because his wife, Adrian, Adrian, she negotiated with Napoleon to allow her husband to return to France if he agreed to retire from politics. In fact, he would be arrested if he was found engaging in politics. That was how threatening Napoleon found Lafayette. Unfortunately, banishment from public life occurred at the same time that George Washington died on the other side of the ocean. Unable to attend his funeral or even a memorial service in Paris, Lafayette's name wasn't even mentioned, which makes me really sad. Over time, Napoleon actually approached Lafayette with offers to help him negotiate a better relationship with the United States. He even offered him minister to the U.S., but Lafayette refused unless Napoleon instated the democratic government originally envisioned by the revolution. On the other side of the ocean, after tensions between the two countries subsided, his old friend, now President Thomas Jefferson, offered Lafayette to be governor of the entire Louisiana Purchase. This was over 800,000 square miles from New Orleans to Montana. But again, Lafayette refused because he believed he could better serve his countrymen, pushing for more liberty in France. When Napoleon fell at Waterloo in 1815, Lafayette arranged his secret passage to the United States, but the British prevented this plan from going through, and Napoleon died in exile on the island of St. Helena. Following the defeat and the death of Napoleon, a group of European nations secured the so-called Bourbon Restoration, in which Louis XVI's brothers returned from exile and ruled as absolute monarchs. That's pretty awkward, right? They come back and the French people were like, ooh, sorry, we chopped your brother's head off, forgive us. It was basically as if the entire French Revolution hadn't happened. And during this time, of course, Lafayette did not stop. He supported various liberal conspiracies against the monarchs, and he helped fund and promote democratic rebellions in other countries as well, including the Greek War for Independence against the Ottoman Empire. At this point, his son George Washington was old enough to learn the family trade, which is spreading democracy. And he worked with his father in these efforts. In 1824, preparing to celebrate the 50th anniversary of the American Revolution, President Monroe invited Lafayette on a grand tour of the United States, now 24 states in total, of which Lafayette visited every single one. He was received in every town and city as a celebrity. He was the last great hero of the revolution. In fact, cities competed to outdo each other and commemorative everythings were plastered with his face. In Philadelphia, Independence Hall was saved from demolition and renovated just to have a place grand enough to receive Lafayette. Over the course of 16 months, he traveled the U.S. seeing with his own eyes the nation that he had helped build. His trip also put him in Washington, D.C. during the climax of the most dramatic presidential election to date. The election of 1824 between John Quincy Adams, son of Lafayette's old friend from Paris, and the rough-and-tumble frontiersman Andrew Jackson was not only a dramatic and mudslinging campaign, but it was the first time that no candidate had secured a majority of the Electoral College. 
With the decision up to the House of Representatives, the much more palatable Adams was chosen, despite the fact that Jackson had won the popular vote. Sound familiar? It's impossible now to know what Lafayette thought of all this, but it would be crazy not to think that his visit had some influence on the outcome. The nation at that time was nostalgic for the revolutionary era, and they weren't quite ready to lose the entire founding generation. And it wouldn't be unreasonable that Lafayette might have spoken kindly for his old friend's son. I mean, let's be clear. The elites in Washington were terrified of Andrew Jackson, both literally and symbolically, so they would have probably chosen Adams either way, but having Lafayette there might have made that decision just slightly easier. Finishing out his grand tour, Lafayette did visit General Jackson. I mean, he was the hero of New Orleans from the War of 1812, after all. At his home, the Hermitage in Tennessee, Lafayette saw Niagara Falls and the modern marvel of the Erie Canal. He heard an oration by famed lawyer Daniel Webster, and he visited the Battle at Bunker Hill site before he returned to France. It feels like this should be the end of his story, right? Well, not quite. He has one more revolution to be a part of, and you've probably never heard about it. So Charles X was now on the throne, and it just so happened that he and Lafayette grew up together at Versailles, because of course they did. Lafayette opposed the king, who continued to rule as an absolute monarch. And unfortunately for the king, Lafayette was so famous and popular that to arrest him would spark a rebellion, so he had to continue to listen to him give toasts in honor of American liberty and democracy. But rebellion was sparked, even without Lafayette. After signing an ordinance that would remove voting rights from the middle class and dissolve their parliament, the people resisted. They set up barricades throughout Paris, and though many political leaders were hesitant, Lafayette joined the riots and routed the royalist troops. He was made head of the National Guard again, like history repeating itself literally 41 years later. And the leadership voted to proclaim Lafayette the new ruler. Finally! This whole time I've been like, oh my gosh, someone get this guy in charge of a country. But of course, our dear Lafayette refused. And why? Well, you should know why by now. Because this granting of power by the political leadership was unconstitutional and undemocratic. So he turned down the offer to essentially become the new king. George Washington would have been so proud. Lafayette stayed involved in politics for the next few years, trying to guide France toward a constitutional monarchy. He served as a pallbearer in the funeral for an opponent of the king, and when riots broke out in the streets at the event, Lafayette pleaded for calm. He was unsuccessful, but honestly, I'm kind of glad that he didn't disperse the mobs, because if he had, then we wouldn't have gotten Les Miserables, which was set during this short-lived 1832 June Rebellion. Ah, to see Eddie Redmayne singing as a young revolutionary really makes it all worth it, doesn't it? Lafayette died in 1834 at the age of 76. Ugh, damn it, even his age at death is a patriotic callback to 1776. He was buried next to his wife in Paris, and even though the king ordered a military funeral so that the public wouldn't be allowed to attend, crowds formed around his funeral to pay their respects. In the United States, President Andrew Jackson granted Lafayette the same memorial honors that had been given to Washington upon his death. Both houses of Congress were draped in black for 30 days and all members wore badges of mourning, while Congress urged all Americans to follow similar mourning practices. Later, John Quincy Adams gave a three-hour-long eulogy calling Lafayette, quote, high on the list of the pure and disinterested benefactors of mankind. Known as the hero of the two worlds, the United States owes possibly everything to Lafayette. Without his connections and his ardent support for our cause, the U.S. may never have been able to outlast the British. And he clearly loved the American nation. 
In addition to a son named George Washington Lafayette, one of his daughters bears the name Virginia after George's home state. During his lifetime, Lafayette received an honorary degree from Harvard, a portrait of George Washington from the city of Boston, and a bust as a gift from the entire state of Virginia. He was made a natural-born citizen of the United States upon the ratification of the Constitution. Like, as the Founding Fathers were writing up and ratifying the Constitution, they also were like, you know what's equally important? Making Lafayette a citizen. So Lafayette became an American citizen before the concept of citizenship in his own country even existed. At his funeral, oh y'all, I love this. At his funeral, his son sprinkled dirt over his grave that Lafayette had taken from Bunker Hill during his tour of the States years ago. Damn, Lafayette. You might just be the greatest American of all time. I hope you enjoyed the season two finale. I'll be back with season three, U.S. History, in August, right around the start of the school year. But again, if you still want to hear the sound of my voice, I will be putting out current events episodes every single week throughout the entire summer, but it's only for my Patreon members. So if you're willing to support me with just $5 a month, or if you're listening and you're a teacher, just $3 a month, then please go to patreon.com and join. As always, follow me on social media, on Instagram or Facebook at Antisoch Studies. And if you like what I'm doing, then go wherever you get your podcasts and give me a rating and review. Thanks and have a great summer. Bye.